Mina stares at the visitor. At this elusive, enigmatic, malign presence who has managed, since his recent unwelcome arrival in her life, to turn pretty much everything to shit. She's lost her home. She's lost her job. She's lost her sense of certainty in the world. She's been jumping at shadows, fearful for herself and for the future of her house, all because of him and whatever screwed-up scheme he's working. And now, here he stands, in her room, poring over her designs. An invader in her private space once again, stating by his very presence here that she has no privacy, no agency, no freedom. The parallels with her cousin's machinations are not lost on her, of course. Both of these men seem to think they can simply use her as they wish, a hapless pawn in their clandestine games. Both these smug, self-satisfied bastards seem to think she is nothing more than a tool to be used for their benefit. Well, no more. She's been tangled in the intrigues of others for long enough, and she's sick of playing by their rules. Time to cut the knot, to flip the table. Mina Montessario strides over to the visitor, draws her pistol, and shoots him, point-blank, in the face. Hello, and welcome to The Lone Adventurer an actual play solo RPG podcast with me, Carl White. I will be your narrator, your game master, and your guide as we follow our hero, Mina Montessario, on her journey into the unknown. For this game, I will be using the D&D 5th edition ruleset, as well as a variety of other systems, tools, and tables as they take my fancy. A word of warning. The following scenes may contain mature themes and disturbing imagery. Listener discretion is advised. The adventure continues. Last time on The Lone Adventurer, Mina woke to discover the identity of the new spymaster, and it's the last person she would wish it to be, her cousin. Alexis Montessario. But the bad news didn't stop there. The identity of the Whisperer's murderer was revealed to be the Unseen, a shadowy organisation of shapeshifters. Alexis announced his plan to stave off impending disaster, a marriage of allegiance between Mina and the Duke of House Tereth. And when she gets back to her room at the missing link, things go from bad to worse. The arcane bullet passes straight through the visitor and blows a five-inch hole in the far wall. Brick and plaster dust rain down, and then a furious voice calls up the stairs. I thought I said no more explosions! Sorry, Miss Celia, no damage done, Mina calls down, and walks straight through the image of the visitor. It fades, wavers, and then reforms, an eyebrow raised. Mina ignores him, fishing what looks like a metallic scarab from a coat pocket. She whispers to it and it begins to glow green. She places it on the wall and, under her guidance, it starts to stitch the hole closed, exuding sticky threads of brick, plaster and paint. 
With the work underway, she turns and fixes the visitor with a scowl. So, you found me. Well, now what? More threats? Or have you just come to gloat at the loss of the Whisperer? Oh dear, I have come at a bad time, haven't I? The visitor's projection shrugs. No matter. When I last called, I presented you with an offer, Miss Montessario. You chose not to take me up on that offer, but, to your credit, you did not alert your handlers either. No compliance, but no betrayal. And so you killed the Whisperer. Congratulations! The bitterness in Mina's voice surprises even her. She had not fully appreciated until now how keenly she felt his loss, but it's true. The Whisperer has been a fixture of House Montessario for as long as she can remember. The world, her world, seems a stranger, scarier place without him. The visitor shrugs again. When he speaks, it's almost as if he is speaking to himself. The Whisperer is no longer on the board, that much is true. Actions have consequences, including inaction, and now we are where we are. A time of change. New risks and opportunities emerge to be mitigated or seized as they are identified. He smiles, refocusing his attention on Mina. And that, Miss Montessario, is where you come in. You and Devotant Cadmus here, or should I say, ex-Devotant. Cadmus speaks up, alarmed. You know of me? Indeed we do. Perhaps Miss Montessario neglected to mention but we are very well informed. Well informed enough to know, for example, that the Whisperer died at the hands of the Unseen. Perhaps you have heard of them. Mina is about to snap out a retort, but stops herself. She had naturally assumed the visitor was behind the Whisperer's murder, but that's not what she's hearing here. And Mina senses something else. Weakness? Enlighten me she mutters, probing the extent of the visitor's knowledge. Not of the unseen, but of her. Shape changes, Miss Montessario. An organisation bent on infiltration of the great powers. Deadly in the extreme. I fear that if House Montessario has earned their enmity, the end is surely near. Mina snorts with derision. Yes, I imagine you're all kinds of cut up about that. The fall of House Montessario, orchestrated by this unseen with your support, a marriage made in heaven or hell. The visitor shakes his head. You misunderstand, Miss Montessario. The unseen are no allies of ours. They pose a threat to all of Kairos, ourselves included. Mina is only half listening. She's still processing the implications of that visitor's reaction, or rather, the lack of reaction. To her comment about marriage. She'd been looking for any flicker of a response, but he failed to register that comment at all, which suggests to her that he knows nothing of her cousin's plan. What does that mean? Is his reach into the House of Whispers compromised? Are his claims of omniscience just so much smoke and mirrors? The visitor continues, oblivious. Which brings me to the reason for my visit. The last mission the Whisperer assigned you was in pursuit of the machine cultists and the infernal powder that they deceived. The source of that powder remains a mystery, but we have reason to believe the Whisperer's death was linked to it. 
which likely means the unseen were behind it, and we believe more of the powder is being moved. You entered the underpipes in pursuit of it and emerged unscathed, which is more than can be said for most who venture down there. And so I come to you with a new offer, Miss Montessario. I would like you to return to the underpipes and complete the mission that you began. Locate the source of the infernal powder so that we may neutralize it. Nina stares at him agape for several seconds. You are actually insane, aren't you? Even if I believed you, which, for the record, I do not for one instant, what makes you think I'd go back down into that tangled den of lunatics? The visitor smiles. Three things, Miss Montessario. Firstly, I believe you to be a woman of integrity. You wish to protect your house, to avenge your spymaster's death, and to complete his last assignment. This undertaking gives you the opportunity to do all three. Secondly, I will offer a reward upon successful completion of this mission. I will provide you with a choice. I will either provide you with all the answers you seek, or I will allow you to walk away freely with no further obligation. And thirdly, if you do not do as I ask, I will publicly reveal that the Unseen were behind the Whisperer's death, and the other powers of Kairos will turn on House Montessario like a pack of feral dogs, tearing what remains apart in a desperate desire to be spared a similar fate. So there it stands. I offer you a choice, Miss Montessario. Identify the source of the infernal powder, or do not. Action or inaction and the consequences thereof. Choose wisely. I bid you a good day. And with that, the visitor vanishes. What was that Mina was saying about freedom and agency? Well, this can be a feature of games run with the mythic GM emulator. At times it can feel as though the world is in permanent smackdown mode, that the poor PCs are being continually beaten down and battered by forces beyond their control. Particularly as the chaos factor rises, things can really spiral out of control, and for that last scene we were at chaos factor 9, the highest possible. But although Mina was not exactly in control of that scene, there were a number of positives. She was given a valuable insight into the potential limits of the visitor's knowledge. Perhaps he's not quite as infallible as he claims to be. And she now also has another path she might take, an alternative to the route offered by Alexis. It's an interesting change from where we found ourselves at the start of Chapter 8, where all lines of inquiry look closed and forward momentum seem to be blocked. If this was a game being run by a live GM, this would be somewhat akin to the PCs being offered a sandbox to play in for a little while, and then, when the GM saw that the players were getting stuck and were unsure how to progress, they would introduce plot threats that lead to the next part of the adventure. Now, Mina has got a choice where to take the adventure at this point. The GM has basically said, pick between a social intrigue scenario or a dungeon crawl. Mythic never ceases to amaze me in its ability to emulate the unpredictability of a game master. 
both in the minutiae of its small decisions and in the way that it shapes the overall story at a more macro level. Of course, Mythic is not operating in isolation. The questions that I'm asking it, and my interpretation of the responses, are integral to the process. I suppose that is as much like the interactions in a good gaming group. Done well, the emergent narrative of a group RPG is the result of a sort of storytelling feedback loop between the GM and the players. No one person wholly guides the story, and the same is true here. Although I do have a lot of input, the Mythic GM cannot function without me, and in the end, Mythic can still take things in a very unpredictable direction. There are negative consequences for Mina selecting either path presented to her at this point, or for refusing both and choosing some other option, but that's no bad thing. Consequences keep things interesting and make the choices hard and meaningful. I'm not going to comment further on the mechanics of that scene, save to explain how I arrived at the visitor's proposal. I asked the event question, what does he want, and drew an event focus, and the focus was NPC action, and the NPC I drew was the underpipes. Remember, the character list is not limited to just people, it can be places or even significant objects too. The event description was carry riches, something to do with riches carried in the underpipes. A few alternative interpretations of this occurred to me, and so I summarised them into four different options, rolled a d4, and the trail of the infernal powder was the one that came up. I mentioned that there were some positives in this scene for Mina, and I think, on balance, they were probably enough to warrant nudging that chaos factor down to eight. Let's see how long that downward trend is going to last. And on top of everything else, we're homeless again. It's hardly surprising, Cadmus reasons. You did blow up your room, Mina. Again. I think perhaps it's for the best. I'm not sure how much longer the missing link or Mrs. Celia could have withstood the level of excitement you brought to the place. Mina grins in spite of herself. I suppose there were a fair few explosions. But it does leave us with a bit of a problem. Where now? We could probably take refuge at the House of Whispers. That would keep us safe from the visitors' prying eyes, probably. But I've no desire to have Alexis constantly looking over my shoulder. Another inn, perhaps, Cadmus suggests. One with a slightly less highly strung innkeeper? Mina shakes her head. No, I don't think so. The visitor showing up at the missing link and knowing all about you just goes to show there's nowhere we can hide. So maybe we shouldn't even try. I think it's time to go home. To the rookery. As they cross the city, Mina considers their options. We've been presented with two demands, and I can't say I much like the sound of either of them. The more I think about it, the more an arranged marriage to Tristan to Reth sounds like a scheme designed to benefit Alexis, and Alexis alone. And that's even assuming the city's most eligible bachelor would be willing to marry several rungs below his station. Mina is not exaggerating. Duke Tristan Tereth is young, handsome and athletic. Since the death of the old Duke, his father, several months ago, he is now the youngest head of a great house by far, and society speculation over possible brides has reached fever pitch. To date, he has kept everyone guessing. 
Even Mina, who has been ostracised from high society ever since the incident, is well aware of the young Duke's cachet. Nor is she exaggerating to point out that any wedding between her and the Duke would be a considerable mismatch. Even before her father's death and her own fall from grace, she had only been the daughter of a baron. And now she was not even that. As Duke of his house, frankly, Tristan could do significantly better. But she has learned through bitter experience not to underestimate her cousin. If he believes such a match is possible, it probably is, though his means for securing it are likely to be highly questionable. He had been called away before providing her with any further details, but she can use her imagination. Blackmail? Bribery? Anything's possible. Cadmus interrupts her speculation. You said before the visitor interrupted us that Alexis was responsible for the death of your father. Surely you don't mean he was the killer? Mina grimaces. No, he would never dirty his own hands. And of course, I have no direct proof of his involvement. He's far too careful for that. But I don't believe for one minute that the man who killed my father was some deranged malcontent acting alone as was claimed. It was all too convenient. My father was in the way, you see, preventing the prosecution of a war on ethical grounds, a war that was ultimately waged once he was dead, and the rest of his family disgraced, a war that made Alexis, among others, very wealthy indeed. The bitterness is plain in her voice. This is a wound that has never healed. She glances over at Cadmus. A story for another day. Suffice it to say, I have very little desire to do anything that is likely to benefit Alexis, even if it is supposedly in the interests of House Montessario. Which leads us to unsavoury option number two. After our narrow escape and your own experiences down there, I have no desire to return to the underpipes. And frankly, I have no desire to be doing the bidding of the visitor. I don't respond well to threats, and I'm not at all sure that we can trust a single word he said. But one thing he said, I think probably is true. The Whisperer put me on the trail of the Infernal Powder for a reason, and if there's a chance that following that trail can lead me to his killers, then I think we have to take it. Cadmus, I think we have to go back to the underpipes. But I know what happened to you down there was beyond awful. I can't ask you to go back down there. Cadmus smiles grimly. Mina, there is nothing you can do or say that will prevent me from accompanying you. And I think I may be able to help us get down there undetected. Awesome. It turns out that Mina is Batman. I wonder if she'd been to watch Zorro before her father was murdered before her eyes. Nearly everything in the preceding scene is Mina speculating. I did ask the Oracle how does Mina think Alexis was involved in Baron Montessario's death, and the answer to this was intolerance the intellectual, which led me to the conclusion that the Baron was pushing for peace. But the important thing here is the wording of the question. I didn't ask how was Alexis involved, but how does Mina think he was involved? When posing questions to the GM emulator, it's important to try and remember how you would ask questions of a real GM. You'd never ask, who is the secret big bad evil guy, but you might ask, based on my character's backstory, who do I think the big bad evil guy is? Same thing here. 
the GM emulator is revealing parts of the world that sit just outside of the player's control or knowledge. I suppose I could argue that this is PC backstory territory, and that I could just make this part up, and that would be a legitimate approach. But I didn't have a clear picture in my head of why Mina thought Alexis might be involved, and so I figured the GM could pitch in, just like I might do in a group game. The important thing to remember, though, is that this is pure speculation on Mina's part. She has no proof, just a profound distrust and dislike of her cousin. At this point, we have no way of knowing whether Alexis, or anyone else, really was involved. This scene highlights another clever aspect of the Mythic GM emulator design. Even though there was no mechanical event that dragged the story in the direction of the plot thread come to terms with father's death, the simple fact that this thread exists keeps it present in the fiction and encourages me as a player to explore it. It serves as a reminder to me of what matters most. Nothing went horribly wrong for a change in that scene, and so the chaos factor drops again, down to seven. As they head across the city towards the rookery, weaving through bustling market crowds, Cadmus explains how he originally entered the underpipes. As you know, it's no simple task to enter the underpipes. Quite apart from the fact that entry is technically illegal, the entrances themselves are either well-guarded or well-guarded secrets. Mina nods. It had only been by chance that she had discovered the pool entrance beneath the temple to Bran or the grating in the Toreth palace cellars, and she's wary of using either route again. Well, once I decided I was going to walk the underpipes, I needed a way in. I had been offering Ankra's blessing to those poor souls incarcerated in the blood pits, and one of their number, a gladiator named Antiope, offered me knowledge in exchange for aiding in her escape bid. Mina has heard of the blood pits, of course. Located near the Iron Spire, the pits are deeply contentious. Many adore the thrill of gladiatorial combat and see the pits as just punishment for the criminals that find themselves there, forced to fight for their survival and their freedom. Just as many consider the blood pits a barbaric throwback to a less enlightened age and work tirelessly to see them banned. Regardless, at least for now, the blood pits remain a weekly fixture in the Kairas calendar. There's an entrance beneath the blood pits? Mina asks and Cadmus nods. Yes. Within the shrine to Gora, there is a hidden entrance that leads to a pipe, and from there it's a long, cramped crawl, but that pipe does lead down to the tunnels beneath. Antiope and I were able to find our way down into the underpipes that way. Whatever else Cadmus had been about to say is cut off, as a tremendous explosion rocks the whole street. Some distance ahead, a plume of scarlet flame erupts into the sky, and a cloud of dust and black smoke follows in its wake. Panic spreads through the shoppers and merchants alike. Mina stares up at the explosion's aftermath. Did you see the colour of those flames? That was infernal powder! But Cadmus is already running, heading towards the site of the explosion, pushing his way through the press of bodies heading in the opposite direction. It came from Singer Square. Someone has attacked a temple of the Seven. And not just any temple, it turns out. 
By the time they reach Singer Square, the target of the attack is obvious. What had once been the monastery of thrice-blessed Ankara, home to Cadmus's order, is now mostly smoking rubble. Small fires still burn, charred bodies litter the once idyllic square, and the wounded stumble through smoke and debris, bleeding and shell-shocked. It is a sight of unmitigated horror. Cadmus spends the next several hours tending to the wounded, first using his magic and then, when that is spent, his skills as a medic. Mina provides what help she can. As they work, they attempt and fail to process what has happened. This loss of life is utterly senseless. An attack on the healers of Ankara? This is utterly unthinkable until now. Who would do such a thing? And why? Mina receives her answer as they bind the wounds of a young novice. I saw them as I was leaving, he says, his voice trembling. They wore metal masks. They carried barrels up the monastery steps and inside. No one thought to stop them. Why would they? I thought them a curiosity, nothing more, but then... Mina and Cadmus glance at one another. Machine cultists. The destruction of their airship had only delayed their plans. Why would they target the monks of Ankara of all people? It's an utter mystery, but one that Mina swears to herself she is going to solve. Cadmus, she says hesitantly. I understand if you feel you must stay here to help your order rebuild. The devotant shakes his head firmly. His eyes are blazing with an expression that Mina has never seen on his face before. He looks furious, vengeful. No, Mina, we've done what we can here. We need to find the people that did this and see they never perpetrate such horrors again. I had intended for that scene to simply be a chat between Mina and Cadmus that revealed how he had accessed the underpipes. But when I asked if the scene was altered in any way, I was informed of an interrupt. Interrupts in the Mythic GM emulator can significantly alter the way a scene plays out and introduce unpredictable elements into both the story content and structure. In this case, the interrupt event was NPC positive, something good for one of the NPCs on my list. I asked who and was told machine cultists. And what was good for them? My event description was praise fears. Once again, the meaning of this didn't come easy, I was tired by this point in my gaming, and so I took my own advice from Chapter 8 and let the question percolate by going to bed for the night. Sure enough, I woke up with the answer crystal clear in my mind. What does praise fears mean in the context of a mad cult intent on stealing high explosives? The celebration of terror, that's what. Terrorism. So, who would they attack? I decided that as adherence to something called the Great Machine, they would be most likely to attack one of the competing religious orders, one of the Seven Keys. I've still not provided much information about them, as I only really want to introduce game lore when it's directly relevant to the story being told. But suffice it to say for now, there are seven objects of religious devotion variously known as the Keys, the Singers and the Colossi. We've encountered a couple so far, Ankara represents life to its worshippers, and Bran represents death. Two very different religious orders have grown up around these two. 
There was also mention briefly of Gora in the last scene. Gora is worshipped as the embodiment of war and conflict. I figured the most likely target for the machine cultists was Surtees. Surtees is the key representing nature. But Mythic disagreed it was not Surtees. Then I asked if the target was in fact one of the religious orders. Perhaps the target instead was political or one of the great houses, maybe even a guild. Nope, Mythic informed me, definitely a religious target. So, with Surtees removed from the list, I rolled d6 for the remaining keys, and the answer was Ankara. Now, I'm quite pleased that it was. Not only does it tie the story back to a pre-existing group that we've already had a bit of remote visibility of, but now Cadmus has real skin in the game. This just got very personal for him, assuming it wasn't already personal after the whole locked-in-a-box thing. A vengeful healer. That could be interesting. My follow-up questions established that the attackers were no longer at the scene, that they'd been suicide bombers, and that there had been some survivors, one of whom had seen them. I also asked if Cadmus would be willing to stick with Mina in light of this atrocity. It was perfectly reasonable to think that he might feel compelled to stay behind and help his brethren recover, but Mythic had other plans in store for Cadmus. When I asked if he was still willing to return to the underpipes, I got an exceptional yes. Not only was he willing, he was now highly motivated. I then returned to the original purpose of this scene. How did Cadmus find the underpipes? Based on what we'd seen so far, I decided to make entrance to the underpipes difficult, even forbidden. That helps explain how no one seems to know about the factionalism and conflict that's developed down there, and why the place isn't full of tourists and explorers. I think this behind-the-scenes section has probably gone on long enough, so I'll let you take a look at the show notes if you're particularly interested in how I arrived at the location of the entrance. You may have noticed I switched the order of the interrupt event and the planned conversation about the way Cadmus exits... You may have noticed I switched the order of the interrupt event and the planned conversation about the way Cadmus accessed the underpipes. Strictly speaking, an interrupt scene should completely alter the planned scene. The mythic deck rules have this to say. Interrupt scenes represent the unexpected. This scene should be something very different from the expected scene. An interrupt scene is treated like an event. It's essentially a random event that we are treating as the basis for the next scene. But I figured, as this scene was originally about filling in some backstory rather than new events, there was no harm in combining the two. And, for the sake of narrative coherence, it made more sense to have the conversation get interrupted by the event rather than take place after it. Where the order of mythic responses has little material effect on the outcome, I feel quite comfortable changing that order to whatever works best to serve the story. I think, on balance, my characters had more control this scene than loss of it. Sure, there was that awful terrorist attack, but my party now have a clear plan of action, and are determined to see it through and put an end to the evil of the machine cultists and their weapons dealers. Chaos Factor goes down to six. Next time, Mythic Willing we return to the underpipes.
You have been listening to The Lone Adventurer, a solo RPG podcast played, written, and performed by me, Carl White. If you've enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a five-star review or telling your friends. It really is a huge help. You can find show notes at theloneadventurer.podbean.com. I include any links mentioned on that site, as well as my interactions with the Mythic GM emulator and any mechanics information. The story will continue in the next episode of The Lone Adventurer. Thank you for listening.